Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. So we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 12. Once again, so Revelation chapter 12, let's turn over there very quickly. We've got this prophecy about God's church, the symbol of a woman. And in Bible prophecy, a woman is a symbol of a church. So Revelation chapter 12, we find that God's church is symbolized in three different stages. It begins in verse 1. You have the symbol of a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. In Revelation chapter 1, those 12 stars or the stars are spoken of symbolizing leaders. And so here we're dealing with God's church in the time when there were 12 leaders of it. If we go on a little bit further in verses 4 and 5, we have the birth of Jesus Christ. So this is God's church in the time of Jesus and the apostles. But then when we go to verse 6, what do we find happening in verse 6? Here's a little bit of review for you. For those of you who are at the seminar, what happens in verse 6? What happens to the woman? She flees to the wilderness. Why is she going to the wilderness? Because she is being persecuted. Bitter persecution breaks out against God's church. And so we have the second stage of God's church right here. And then the Bible goes back. It gives some background information, as it often does in the book of Revelation. It backs up to tell you about the great controversy that has been taking place between Christ and Satan and how it is that Satan is here and that he is persecuting the woman so bitterly. And then when you come down to verse 14, it picks up again from where it had left off in verse 6, speaking about the woman being in the wilderness for a period of 1,260 days. And a day in Bible prophecy symbolizes what? A year, so 1,260 years. And continuing on from there, we go down to verse 17. And in verse 17, we find this passage where it says, And the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the word remnant there is a very, very critically important word for us to understand because the word remnant simply means that which remains. Those that are remaining at the end of time. Who here wants to be remaining when Jesus comes back? I do. Praise God. Good. Now we have no guarantee, of course, that that will take place. We have no guarantee that we'll live through the next minutes, but uh, God willing, let's hope that we all do. But it's my intention to be here and to be alive and it's my aim, my goal to be a part of the remnant that is alive when Jesus comes back. And so the next couple of points that the Bible raises here are then important for us if we want to be a part of this particular group. The Bible says the remnant of her seed which do, what do they do? What does the Bible say they do? They keep the commandments of God and what does the Bible say that they have? So they do one thing and they have one thing. What is it that they have? The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we need to find out and understand what is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And to do so, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19. And while we're turning there, let's, let's consider the obvious for a moment. If I was to announce that somebody was going to get up the front here and share their testimony, what is it that you would be expecting to hear from them? Their story. 
And so if you have the testimony of Jesus Christ, it's going to be the what? The story of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so? Absolutely. All right, so let's read it here in Revelation chapter 19. And we go down to verse 10. And here it's John is speaking and he's interacting with an angel. And as he interacts with his angel, the Bible says, And I fell at his, that's the angel's feet, to worship the angel. And he said to me, Don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. That's a defining passage right there. The Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now we need to find out and understand then what is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy can be two things. Number one, it can be the, 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 the gift that the Holy Spirit gives you whereby you can teach the prophecies of the Bible. If that was the case, then I would have the spirit of prophecy. Or the spirit of prophecy, the other alternative is that it can be the gift of prophecy itself. And the way we find out which one of the two that it is is by finding how the spirit of prophecy is manifest. How is it revealed? How is it displayed to the world? And if we go over to Revelation chapter 22, we are going to find here that, first of all, John was a bit of a slow learner because he tries to worship the angel again. And the angel once again says, don't be worshipping me. No, 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 don't be worshipping me. In uh, verse 8, I, John, saw these things and when I heard them, I... I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And he said to me, don't do it. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. Notice here the Bible says that the brethren are who? The brethren are the prophets. Go back to chapter 19 and right there in verse 10, it says, I fell at his feet to worship the angel. He said, see that you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Who is it that has the testimony of Jesus? The prophets have the testimony of Jesus and it is the prophets that have the gift or or the spirit of prophecy. And so here we find very, very clearly the Bible tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. Well, that's kind of obvious when you think about it, isn't it? You see, Jesus didn't personally write any of this book right here except for the Ten Commandments, did he? It's the only part that he actually wrote himself personally. How did Jesus write the rest of this book? Through the prophets, through the gift of prophecy. And so the Bible tells us very, very clearly that the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. Let's look at a couple of other passages in relationship to this very quickly. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll read here in verse 6 and 7. Here the Bible says, even as the testimony of Jesus was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift. Notice that the testimony of Jesus here is listed as being one of the gifts of the Spirit. Now the Bible teaches that there are many different gifts of the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit gives those gifts severally, the Bible says, to whomever He wills. In other words, 
The Holy Spirit is the one who chooses which gifts we receive and he divvies them up and he shares them around as he sees being appropriate because he is sovereign God. That is his decision to make. However, there are a number of places. Let's go to Ephesians and uh, we'll look over here in Ephesians, some of the different gifts that are listed over here. Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 11. The Bible says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So here we have a list of a number of different gifts that are given. We need to find out why was it or why is it, I should say, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Why does the Holy Spirit give gifts? Well, the answer comes in the next verse right here in verse 12, where it begins with word for. Now the Bible is going to tell you what he gave the gifts for. For what? It says, for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that means to build up and strengthen the body of Christ, which is his church. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to build up and to strengthen his church. That's why these gifts are given to the different members of God's church. Well, how long, and this is a very, very valid question right here. For how long were the gifts of the Spirit to remain with the church? You see, there are various views on this. I have met some very devout people who have come to me at times and said, the gifts of the Spirit were only given to the church in the time of the apostles. And that when the apostles died, the gifts of the Spirit were taken away. And yes, we now serve by God by faith, but we no longer have the gifts of the Spirit. And I can kind of understand why some people have come to this conclusion. You see, if you look at the history of Christianity, there is a very, very long period of history where it seems that some of these gifts, and particularly the gift of prophecy, disappeared. Isn't that so? Right the way down through the Dark Ages. We need to find out why. What was going on here? Why did the gift of prophecy disappear during that particular time period? We're going to come back to that in a moment. But first of all, we're going to find out what does God say about how long these gifts were intended to be with God's church. In Ephesians 4 and verse 13, continuing right along, it says, until. So now the Bible is going to tell you how long these gifts are to be with God's church for. Until we come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is anybody here who has reached that particular point yet? I'm glad nobody put up their hand because if you did, I would have said, why did you just blow it then? Okay, these gifts are given to God's church until Jesus returns. We are going to need the Holy Spirit right here amongst us, strengthening us, building us up, giving out gifts until Jesus comes back and we are glorified like he is glorified. And so it raises this question, you know, why was it that the gift of prophecy disappeared for so long? And uh, to begin to unpack that question, we're going to begin by looking at the importance of the gift because there are those who have come to me at times and they've said, hey, okay, wait a minute, wait, this, this whole gift of prophecy that the Bible speaks about right here as the testimony of Jesus, you know, maybe one of the reasons why it disappeared is because it's a less important gift. Do you think that the gift of prophecy is a less important gift? I've got some people shaking their heads. I did a little bit of research on this to find out which are the gifts that are spoken of the most in the Bible. And this is just a couple of samples right here. 
and, 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 in, and in giving these samples right here, I'm not downplaying any, uh, any gift over another. All gifts of the Spirit come from God. All are valid and all are needed by God's church. Is that clear? Good. Gift of prophecy is mentioned 530 times in the Bible. That's a fair chunk, wouldn't you say? I would say that's a rather major emphasis on the gift of prophecy right there. Teachers uh, mentioned 268 times. That's pretty decent. So for all of you who are teachers here, Heidi, there you go. Pat on the back for you. Pastors, elders and bishops. And I put those three words together because in the Bible, those three words are all the same word. They're all the same thing. Uh, We divvy it up in our church here so we have um, pastors and elders which are somehow separate, but biblically there's no separation between them. Apostles are mentioned 82 times. This one I found interesting because I get given a hard time over this one sometimes. Um, Tongues is mentioned in five places in the Bible. And so I think that we need to, you know, keep in mind that the gift of prophecy out of all of these is by far the most important gift of them all. However, why was it that the gift of prophecy disappeared during those long ages of the Dark Ages? We're going to look at a principle here that you'll find that goes from one end of the Bible to the other. And it's a very simple principle. It's called the law and the prophets. And what you'll find is a very simple thing is this. God's law is very straightforward, isn't it? God's law is not something that is hard to understand. And so God gives us his law. And if we reject God's law... Why should God give us extra information, additional information, if we're not keeping God's law? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? He gives us the simple stuff. He can't handle the simple stuff. Then why should I give you the more complex stuff? And the principle that you'll find down through the Bible is that where God's people keep God's law, God speaks to them through his prophets. When they don't keep God's law, he doesn't speak to them. And so we're going to look at some passages in relationship to that. So let's go in our Bibles to... Uh, We're going to start in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26. Jeremiah, chapter 26. And we will look at some examples of this. Jeremiah, chapter 26. And let's start in verse 4. And it says, You shall say unto them, says the Lord, So it's God speaking to Jeremiah and telling him what to speak to the people. If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, rising up early and sending them, but you've not listened, then I'll make this house like Shiloh, and I'll make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Notice here there are two conditions for the prosperity of God's people. And the first of those is the law. The second of those is the prophets. See how these two principles go together. And God simply says, look, if you don't keep my law and listen to my prophets, I will make this house like Shiloh destroyed. Well, let me ask you this question. Did they listen to God's law? Did they listen to his prophets? What happened? You know the history? No, they didn't, did they? Nebuchadnezzar came along and destroyed the place and it did indeed become like Shiloh. So let's go to another passage here just to watch how this works. In fact, Jeremiah, if we go over the next book of the Bible, don't miss it. It's a small one, Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9. And what you find here is that, yes, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, 
and Jeremiah mourns the destruction of it. And here in Lamentations 2 and verse 9, it says, Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is what? No more. The law is gone. And as a result of that, what is taking place? Her prophets also don't find any vision from the Lord. And so once again, when the law is gone, then there is no vision from the prophets. We have this principle of the law and the prophets working together. We'll look at a couple more examples very quickly. Ezekiel chapter 7. So next book of the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 7. And we'll go down to verse 26. Ezekiel 7 and verse 26. Mischief shall come upon mischief, and rumor will be upon rumor, and they will seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancient. And so the Bible describes here troubling times coming. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. It is the same circumstances. Babylon is about to arrive. Terrible things are going to happen. And they're going to go to the prophet for a vision. And the prophet is not going to have anything to say to them. Why? Because they're not keeping God's law. God's like, well, I have nothing to say to you. The law is simple. Keep my law. Start there. And then I'll have some extra things to say. If we go over a little bit further in this same book, We go over to Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 3. Ezekiel gets even more clear on this subject again. In verse 3, well, God gets more even, even clearer. God comes to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Are you come to, or have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. So he comes to them and says, look, you've come to ask me. And of course, in those days, you would ask God for guidance through the prophet. He's like, you've come to ask me. I have nothing to say to you guys. Why? What was the problem? What was the issue that was taking place here? If you read on down in in verse 13, he gives the issue. He likens them to Israel. The the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walk not in my statutes. They despise my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. My Sabbaths, they greatly polluted. Then I said, I'll pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. What was their problem? They had turned away from God's law. And God wasn't speaking to them. God says, I've got nothing to say to you guys. The law is simple. Just follow follow the law and then I will have some extra things to say to you. And so we find this principle um, working its way all the way down through this particular passage through through here. One One more passage, one more example. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. The Bible says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keeps the law, he is the one who is happy. Notice we have the vision and the law. And you can see throughout the Bible, you'll find that these two principles go hand in hand. We could go from one example to another, to another, to another. But where you have the law, then God speaks through his prophets. And when the law is taken away and done away with, then it is that God has nothing to say. And so if we go to the history of the Dark Ages and that 1260 year period where the church is in the wilderness, we can see that it is preceded by a decline of truth and it is followed by a rise of truth. We have the apostolic church over here, the woman in white, with all the spiritual gifts. This is the church in the time of Jesus and the apostles. 
and then the law is done away with, and then the gift of prophecy disappears, and then Sunday comes in to replace the Sabbath, and then the immortality of the soul and sprinkling and so many other pagan ceremonies invade God's church, and it takes Christianity down into the dark ages. And then you have the reversal beginning, and it begins in the latter end of the Dark Ages here with the great reformation of the 16th century and baptism is returned. The mortality of the soul, the Sabbath is restored. The gift of prophecy comes back. The remnant of the woman comes back with all of the spiritual gifts. Notice what it says in Revelation 12:17. Let's go over there again and remind ourselves what Revelation 12:17 said. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. The dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? They keep the commandments of God. They have God's law. And what else do they have? The testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy has been restored. Why? Because God's law has been restored. It's that simple. The law and the prophets. You go right through the Bible, one into the other. These two always go hand in hand. And so we need to, at this particular point, then take a, a moment to consider God's method. You see, when God creates a method and it's a good method, God sticks with that method. Isn't that so? In fact, every method that God creates is a good method, isn't it? That's why the Bible says that God doesn't change. So let's think about God's method in relationship to the gift of prophecy. Let's think about the great events that our world has seen in the past, in history, as a part of, in relationship to the Bible. What are some of the great events that you'll find in the Bible? Somebody name me one. Sorry? Creation. Creation. Well, you know, that's probably the biggest of all, the most significant of all of the events. And creation, we can't really say that creation was preceded by the gift of prophecy, because there weren't human beings here then. So let's find another one. Let's, this will, I wasn't expecting that one. The flood. Okay, so God is, the flood is the next big one that comes along. God is about to flood the whole world. What does, who does God send in preparation for the flood? Noah. That's right. All right. Somebody give me another big event. The Exodus. Does God send a prophet? What was his name? Thank you. Another big one. Sorry? Oh, and the plagues. That's right. Exodus and the plagues. Yes, indeed. That was the, uh, that was the ten plagues on Egypt. Messiah. The Messiah. And who did God send as a prophet for the Messiah? John the Baptist, John the Baptist and? Anna and Simeon. Yeah, see. <laughs> okay, great. We've got... Uh, you guys giving me a hard time back there. All right. Every time we find a big event happening in the Bible, what does God do? He sends a prophet to guide God's people through that event. Isn't that so? A prophet that has a lifetime calling to the gift of prophecy. And sometimes we get the impression that, you know, there were millions and millions of prophets back then. There wasn't actually. If you take all the prophets that are named in the Bible and span them out over the 1600 year period in which the Bible was written, or the... 4,000 year period that the Bible covers, they actually weren't that common. But they would come along and they would guide God's people through specific periods of time. This is how God works. Okay, so we've talked about a number of great events in the Bible. What is the greatest event that not only our world will ever see, but the universe will ever see? The return of Jesus Christ. So what would the assumption be? That at the end of time, before the return of Jesus Christ, the gift of prophecy will return. 
What does the Bible say? The remnant of the woman keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ, the gift of prophecy. That's what we would expect, isn't it? Okay. So I'm going to look at another principle in relationship to God's method. And this time I'm going to make, look at it more specifically. And this time we're going to look at God's method in relationship to time prophecy. And while we're considering that, we also need to consider what is the role of a prophet? What is the role of a prophet? Somebody help me out. To tell the future. What else? Okay, so to tell the future, to tell the truth, yes? Warning, Warning. absolutely, yes? God's mouthpiece, all right. Let me, let me ask you this. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, what was he telling there? Was he telling the future? He was telling the past, absolutely. So a prophet deals with past, present, and future. Okay, something else that you'll find interesting in relationship to prophets. There are two kinds of prophets in the Bible. Let's turn our Bibles over to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Sorry, First Chronicles. And I'm going to show you something here very, very interesting. First Chronicles chapter 29. So the end of First Chronicles, not Corinthians, Chronicles, Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 29, and we're going to read verse 29. Here the Bible says, Now the Acts of David the King, first and last, Behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the prophet, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the prophet. Okay, so now I'd like you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Gad. What? What's wrong? Why aren't you turning to the book of Gad? Oh, it's not there. Okay, that's all right then. Turn to the book of Nathan. Well, that one's not there either. We have Samuel, though, don't we? We've got the book of Samuel, but we don't have the book of Nathan and Gad. Okay, so for those of you who are interested, this uh, illustrates two different kinds of prophets. You have what we call canonical prophets and non-canonical prophets. And a canonical prophet is a prophet whose works make up a part of the canon of Scripture which has nothing to do with a big gun. The word canon in relationship to the Bible, is spelt differently. can't remember which one has two ends and which one has one end, but anyway, whatever. And it refers to the rule, the rule of Scripture. And so you have some prophets who wrote for all time. And thus, their works are included in the book for all time, the Bible. You have other prophets who wrote for their specific time. Therefore, their works are not included in the book for all time. Their works were kept there for their time. And so Samuel wrote for all time. Nathan and Gad, no, they wrote specific things for their time. And there's a couple of little portions there in the book of uh, books of you know, for, uh, uh, Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and so forth that are of benefit to us, but we don't have their books. They're not necessary for us today. So a couple of different kinds of prophets that we have here. Anyway, God's method with time prophecy. Let's look at this very quickly. First of all, in Genesis chapter 15, we have a time prophecy that was given. Does anybody remember who this prophecy was given to and how long it was for? It was given to Abraham, and how long of a time period did it span? 
400 years of Egyptian captivity. That's right. 400 years of Egyptian captivity. And I want you to notice what happens. At the end of, that, of the completion of that prophecy, you have Moses. He comes along and gives prophetic guidance at the fulfillment of the prophecy. So notice what you have with time prophecy. You have a prophet who initiates the prophecy and then another prophet who bookends it by coming along and giving guidance at the end of that prophecy. You all see how that works? And this is, we'll look at a few more examples very quickly. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10, you have a time prophecy. It's given to Jeremiah. It is 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And at the end of those 70 years, you have two prophets who turn up, Haggai and Zechariah, to give prophetic guidance at the fulfillment of the prophecy. If we look at another example... In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, you have a time prophecy. It's given to Daniel. It's 490 years of Jewish probation or 483 years to the Messiah. We looked at that during the seminar. And John the Baptist came along and gave prophetic guidance at the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. You see how the principle works? One prophet initiates it. Another turns up at the end of it. Okay, what about this one? In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, you have the longest time prophecy found anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't matter where you start it. It's going to land you in modern times. But in our seminar, we found the starting point. We found the ending point ending in 1844. So that's in modern history. It's the only one of these time prophecies that extends all the way through to modern history. It is a prophecy that is given to Daniel. It is 2,300 years to the judgment. The question is, who gives prophetic guidance at the fulfillment of that prophecy? You see, the Bible says here that the remnant keeps all the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we would expect the gift of prophecy to return, to give guidance during the fulfillment of this prophecy and to prepare for the return of, prepare people for the return of Jesus Christ. That would be the logical conclusion, wouldn't it? So we have a uh, number of options then that we can consider. Let's go back to that particular time period and let's consider some of the people who turned up and claimed to have the gift of prophecy. I'll begin with this guy, Joseph Smith, who was an alcoholic and was lynched to death, more or less, because of certain evil deeds that he was committing. You know, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. And so I don't think that he qualifies, do you? No, let's scrub him off the list. And then you have Andrew Jackson Davis. Well, he was a spiritualist. He was in communication with Satan. So I think we can scratch him off the list, can't we? And then you have C.T. Russell, the same era, but a little bit further along. And he, of course, taught that Jesus Christ was a created being, that Jesus had an origin, that there was a time when Jesus did not exist separate from the Father. So I think we can scratch him off the list because that's not what the Bible teaches. Then we continue on. Who else? We've got Mary Baker Eddy, who taught that hygiene in the use of medicine was a deception of Satan. So who wants to go with Mary Baker Eddy this morning? No. Particularly if I'm going in for surgery. Uh, Edgar Casey, of course, uh, he was a spiritualist as well. And uh, a little bit later on in, the, in that era, but... Um, I don't see anybody in this list here that qualifies. I'm going to suggest somebody to you this morning uh, that I believe qualifies. It's not, you know, obviously you can't take my word for it. You need to go and investigate it for yourself. But that was a lady by the name of Ellen White. 
Ellen White was actually an American lady who spent some time living in this area right here and actually ministered right here in Maitland on several occasions and uh, brought a lot, of, uh, a lot of advancement to this country. But that's a fairly big statement to say, yeah, I think this person right here qualifies. So what does it actually take to qualify? On this gift, because this gift is the most important of all of the gifts. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 stresses this repeatedly, that the greatest of the gifts is the gift of prophecy. It also comes with the most stringent tests. And that's what we need to go and to apply for ourselves and to investigate for ourselves. So let's look at some of the tests of a prophet. And we're going to begin in looking at these in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. And this is what we must apply because so often I find that somebody comes along with the gift of prophecy and as Christians we're just like, oh, well, I have the gift of prophecy. That's great. Without actually stopping to ask the question, now wait a minute, is it possible that this person could be a false prophet? What does the Bible say in Matthew 24? What does it say four times over? Beware of false prophets at the end of time. Isn't that so? It doesn't say beware of people claiming the gift of prophecy. It says beware of false ones. And once I presented this message and I had a group of people come to me afterwards and they were really upset and they're like, we really didn't like your message. I'm like, why? And they said, because you, should, you said that we should test the spirits. We should test whether a person's gift is from God or not. I'm like, why do you not like that? Isn't that a good thing? And they're like, no, it's a denial of faith. We should accept it by faith. The moment you start to test, it's denying the spirit. You're going to deny the spirit and commit the unpardonable sin. You know, the thought went through my mind at that time, just how sneaky the devil is with the deceptions that he comes up with and how he had confused these people so that anybody who came along and claimed to have the gift of prophecy, they go, yeah, okay, sure, he's got the gift of prophecy. Yeah, yeah, why not? And believe anything that he said. And the devil's just got an open door right there to say anything that he wants to say. Isaiah chapter 8 and down in verse 20, the Bible says, to the law and to the what? To the law and to the testimony. Notice two things that always go hand in hand. The law and the prophets. The testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. The law and the prophets, the Bible said, are two things that go hand in hand to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, there is how much light in them? None whatsoever at all. So your first and greatest test of anybody claiming to have the gift of prophecy is this book right here, isn't that so? Which contains the law of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's where we need to go. And if they contradict this book, then clearly they are out the window. So we find that they must follow and promote Scripture and keep and promote the law of God. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 28. And this one is the obvious one, of course. Jeremiah chapter 28. And here we're going to go down to verse 9 where the Bible says, The prophet which prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has sent him. So if a prophet prophesies of something and then it doesn't happen, does God make mistakes? No, absolutely not. Of course, there are many prophecies that are conditional prophecies. 
Say, for instance, uh, Jonah with Nineveh, that was a conditional prophecy. But when God prophesies something that is not a conditional prophecy, then it is going to happen. It's as simple as that. And so somebody claiming to have the gift of prophecy must have a 100% track record of accuracy. And if they don't, they're a false prophet. End of story. That's a very, very simple one. Oh, I think that's a very, very obvious one because God is the one who speaks through the gift of prophecy and God doesn't make mistakes. Is that simple? Just have a 100% track record of accuracy. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. And we've looked at this passage in the seminar a couple of times before, but let's look at it again. Matthew 7, and we'll go down to verse 20. The Bible says, Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And believe me, I am not against in any way, shape or form any of these things right here. This is what God does through human beings here on this earth right now on regular occasions. But he goes on and he says, I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Why? Because they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they don't do the will of the Father. The Bible says, by their fruits, you will know them. And so for somebody claiming the gift of prophecy, we need to do a little bit of fruit inspection. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. And there's quite a serious warning over here. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we shall start reading in verse 9, where the Bible says, When you have come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of the surrounding nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Praise God for that. That was human sacrifice. Or that uses divination or observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consultant with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you. The Bible says very, very simply to summarize all of these right here. Don't have anything to do with anyone who claims to communicate with the dead. And uh, last year when we were in Europe, Shell and I went to a place that was a Majidori where thousands and thousands and thousands of people were there every single day. And they go there because they believe that that is where somebody was communicating with the dead. And that's right in the centre of Christianity today. The Bible says if somebody claims to communicate with the dead, have nothing to do with them. If we go over to 1 John, 1 John. And this is the passage that uh, my friend from some years ago got most upset about me reading. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I didn't write the Bible. Don't blame me. God wrote the Bible. If you have a problem with it, take it up with him. Beloved, in verse 1, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Believe not every spirit, but do what? Test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Hereby you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and is the spirit of Antichrist where you have, you have heard that it should come. And even now it is already in the world. So that's a very simple one right there that I've had friends who have often when uh, in, in various circumstances called upon uh, people who claimed to have the gift of prophecy to confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh and it was impossible for them to do so. They tried to open their mouth and the words wouldn't come out. It's an interesting uh, test that the Bible gives here. And so you see here that the Bible gives the most stringent tests for anyone claiming to have the gift of prophecy, far more stringent than any of the other gifts of the Spirit. Why? Because the Bible upholds this gift as the greatest of all the gifts. And so many people ask me questions about Ellen White and uh, they say, okay, what did she say? What did she talk about? You know, this kind of thing. And so I thought in our last couple of minutes, what we would do is spend a little bit of time just highlighting a couple of things that she spoke about and looking at how they have taken place in our world, just for your interest. The research, of course, is for you to do. That's not for me to do. I've simply made the claim and put it out there and go home and check it out for yourself. I will guarantee that you will be blessed. Ellen White's book, The Desire of Ages, is considered to be the greatest book ever written on the life of Christ. You can go to the, the uh, Library of Congress, places like that. It is the, one, the number one that they'll recommend on this particular subject. Steps to Christ, a little itty-bitty book, probably one of the greatest devotional books ever written. These are classics, that um, all-time classics in Christianity. And, of course, the great controversy. Wow, that's just um, history and prophecy. So you know that one's going to be my favourite, right? Okay, in relationship to the Bible, this is what she said. In our time, there is a wide departure from their doctrines and precepts and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle. The Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. Do you believe in that? I believe in that. Absolutely. The Bible and the Bible alone as our rule of faith and duty. That means then that Ellen White is not a canonical prophet. Her words do not constitute a part of Scripture. She is a non-canonical prophet. Does that mean she's less inspired? No, of course not. There's no such thing as levels of inspiration. Jesus, lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed in pointing souls confused, bewildered, lost to the Lamb of God. This is where we need to be looking we should not be looking at human beings, whether they are human beings who are around us in church or standing up the front or you know, anywhere else. We need to be focusing on Jesus Christ. And that is why when you read in the Bible about all the human beings in the Bible, the Bible shares their defects. Isn't that so? We need to focus our attention on Jesus Christ who has no defects. And she had so much to write about health. And she wrote back in the 1800s. And she was more than 100 years ahead of her time in many, many areas. In 1869, she wrote about electrical currents in the brain. Science didn't catch up until 1934. In 1864, she wrote about tobacco being a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. I love this ad over here. You like this ad? You know, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. It's like, what on earth? You're going to find a doctor that smokes these days, not in this country anyway. And, of course, the Surgeon General didn't actually admit to this until 100 years later. Found this one interesting. When I was last in New York, for those of you old enough to remember this, I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. And then the most costly material was used. This was written well before the invention of the skyscraper. 
The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire, but these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate the, religion, the, the, the engines. In the night I was, I thought, in a room, but not in my own house. I was in a city. I heard explosion after explosion. I rose up quickly in bed and saw from my window large balls of fire jetting out were sparks in the form of arrows and buildings were being consumed. And in a very few minutes, the entire block of buildings was falling and the screeching and mournful groans came distinctly to my ears. For those of us who were alive back then, when that took place, we can remember it very clearly because it was replayed for days on end on our television sets, wasn't it? In relationship to the United States. And you need to remember when she was writing this, the United States was a minor world power. In fact, it wasn't a world power at all. This was a period in which the United States was going to war against its own indigenous population who were using bows and arrows and losing on occasions. They just had a bitter civil war in which they killed more of their own countrymen than has been killed in war ever since that time. But she spoke about things that are happening in our world right now. She talked about Catholicism gaining ground on every side and you see it happening right there. She spoke about the United States being the last superpower and nobody took it seriously in those days because the United States was not even remotely a superpower. It was Britain that ruled the world. It was Queen Victoria who ruled out of one out of every five people on the planet. If you were going to look around the world and say, yeah, there's a great world superpower here at the end of time, you would have picked Britain. Sun never set on the British Empire. But things have changed since then, haven't they? People laughed back then. They don't laugh anymore. She spoke about the United States forming a coalition with the Vatican. She spoke about the United States doing away with the separation of church and state, repudiating every principle of its constitution. And we can see that happening on a daily basis in the United States now. She saw them using miracles to do it. We talked about this last time. She spoke about the condition of the church, the condition of Christianity. I found this an interesting one because in those days, church was very quiet. You know, we have, we have more enthusiasm in our worship services today and I think that's a good thing. It was very quiet back then. And she says, every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. They'll be shouting with drums and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. And some years ago, of course, and it still exists in many places we had back in the 90s. I remember when the Toronto blessing came through. And this was just an exact description of it right here. She spoke about disease in animals. Increasing in proportion to the increase of wickedness among men and the whole animal creation, creation will groan under the diseases that, are, that curse our earth. And this was before pollution had destroyed our planet. You know, it was a very agrarian society just over 100 years ago. But in the last 100 years, industrialization has done some terrible things to our planet. Isn't that so? And to... Uh, the creation. She spoke about genetic engineering in 1864. This is an interesting experiment. They uh, built these mice here using DNA from a glow-in-the-dark sea slug. And they created glow-in-the-dark mice. That'd be kind of convenient for cats, I would think. Uh, this was an interesting one. Scientists injected human brain cells into mouse fetuses, creating a strain of mice that were approximately 1% human. 
Weissman is considering a follow-up that will produce mice whose brains are 100% human. And this is an interesting article because it pointed out that the process involved in creating a mouse that had 1% human DNA was the same process that we used to create a mice that had... I love science. It's like the coolest thing ever. It was the same process that you would use to create a, mice, a mouse that had 100% human DNA. Now, the interesting conclusion from that was, try and wrap your head around this. If you created a male and a female mouse that had 100% human DNA and you took a reproductive cell from either of them and combined them together in a test tube and impregnated that into a woman, that woman would give birth to a human child because the DNA is going to write a human child whose biological parents were mice. That's a, bit, that's a bit sick, isn't it? That's a bit crazy. They haven't done it, thankfully. But you know how humans are, don't you? Sooner or later, somebody's going to try this kind of stuff and is seriously messed up. This one was uh, interesting as well. She spoke about the physical effects of self-abuse and the damage it does to the mind, which is something that really hasn't been documented and since until 2004, of course, when the... Uh, and the pornography flood hit our world through the internet. And of course, now we're seeing the tremendous damage that it is creating right across our world. And uh, yeah, very, very sad situation. But going back to the Bible, she said this, Antichrist is to perform his marvellous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. By their testimony, the testimony of the Bible, Every statement and every miracle must be tested. You can't go wrong with that right there, can you? If you bring everything to the test of God's word, you are going to be in a safe place. Isn't that so? And so these are just a few samples here, but amongst these samples, I wanted to finish off with this one, which is a part of the story of Nicodemus. She says, There are thousands today who need to learn the same truth that was taught to Nicodemus by the uplifted serpent, when they are bidden to look to Jesus and believe that he saves them solely through his grace, they exclaim, how can these things be? Friends, my question to you today is a very simple one. I read this right here and I'm like, yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we are saved solely through the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so? How many of you want to experience His grace in your life today? I do. Praise God. I want to experience that grace in my life. Father in heaven, we thank you so much and we look forward to that day when you call us home. But until then, we will focus on you. And as we look to you, we pray that you'll come into our hearts and change us by the power of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit Adventist-Streaming.org.
sunshine at last In Jesus abiding above His dear arms around me are lovingly clasped How sweetly He dealt His love The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe forevermore What gladness, what rapture is mine The water's receding, the danger is past I'm feeling so happy, I'm anchored at last I'm anchored in love divine Saw me in danger and lovingly came To pilot my stormy young soul Sweet peace he is offered and blessed his dear name The billows no longer roll The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe evermore What gladness, what rapture is Shall control me through life and through death How sweetly I'll trust till the end I'll praise Him each hour and my last dying breath Shall sing of my soul's best friend The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe evermore What gladness, what rapture is mine That was Anchored in Love by Sounds Like Rain. Up next, Wintley Phipps will sing Until Then. My heart can sing When I pause to remember A heartache here Is but a stepping stone Along a trail That's winding always upwards This troubled world Is not my final home But until then My heart will go With joy I'll carry on Until the day My eyes behold that city Until the day 
things of earth will dim and lose their value if we recall their borrowed for a while and things of earth that cause the heart to tremble Is like a waiting falcon when it's released. It's destined for the This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.